Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. I was trying to do the predator sound. <laughs> I can't do it. I certainly can't do it. Welcome, guys. We're, we watched the movie Predator. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I should have said that. You know, predator sounds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Directed by John McTiernan, mm-hmm. director of Die Hard, and starring ye old Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ye old tried and true Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Let's take a listen to the trailer. Let's do it. We are rescue team. Not assassins. Now, what are we gonna do? In a part of the world where there are no rules. We pick up their trail at the chopper, run them down, grab those hostages before anybody knows we were there. What do you mean we? Deep in the jungle, where nothing that lives is safe. Knock, knock. An elite rescue squad. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. They're up against the ultimate enemy. Holy mother of God. Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. She says the jungle just came alive and took him. We cannot see it, but it sees the heat of our bodies and the heat of our fear. Whatever it is out there, it killed Hopper. And now it wants us. But this time, it's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Predator. <laughs> Holy smokes. Epic, epic, epic. I love this movie. Thoughts? It's really fun. I know. It it totally held up in, in terms of like fun action 80s. Totally. I mean, it, you, you get what you pay for. I didn't know that the original concept for the film originated as a joke, basically saying that the only person Rocky Balboa had yet to fight was E.T., the extraterrestrial. Oh, oh. Right. Okay. So it's yeah. like, you know, because you have this Because like, he's fought Mr. Crew. T, he's fought the Russians. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah, okay. It's a commentary on Rocky, it sounds like, but also just saying like, what if we... Uh... But what if that was a movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, I'm, I think we're on to something. Yeah. And it was kind of crazy because John McTiernan, the director, he wanted the banter between the soldiers as real as possible. Okay. So the cast trained together on location with weapons and a military training regiment that started at 6 a.m. every day. Oof. And it included communication with the silent military training signals that, or the hand signals that you see throughout the movie and all that. Wow. Pretty so, legit. I mean, that sounds like a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. And like the screenwriters did a lot of research in that, the, into United States Special Forces and like how they would actually sneak into the jungle and stuff. Uh-huh. So, so it's know. a totally accurate film. Totally. It's like a documentary, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, I read that on a plane ride to Fox Studios, the guy who created the, the Predator, Stan Winston, was sitting next to James Cameron. Mm-hmm. And he was sketching monster ideas. And Cameron suggested that he had always wanted to see a creature with mandibles. And that became a iconic part of the Predator's look. Well, yeah, because the most of the film was shot under the title Hunter, mm-hmm. and only after Stan Winston was brought in was the, the character completely changed, uh-huh. because originally the Hunter model was this large creature with a long neck, a head shaped like a dog, and one big eye in the middle. Ooh. So then I'm sure after this conversation with James Cameron, and then also Stan Winston was allegedly inspired by a painting of a Rastafarian warrior in his office, which oh. makes sense why he has fucking dreadlocks. He's to- totally true. Okay. 
all right, that explains <laughs> that. Like, I'm on board. I'm on board. Yeah. So another note about the the cast working together. They're in the jungle. I think they filmed a lot of this in Mexico, parts of Mexico. I'm mm-hmm. not positive. Yeah. But the actors had to deal with leeches and snakes and like crazy humidity and heat and rough terrain. And all of those scenes where Arnold Schwarzenegger has the mud on him, it's actually pottery clay. And they shot oh. the scenes at night when it was like freezing temperatures. So he's shivering on camera. <laughs> Man. And so he's shivering nonstop. So they tried giving him this drink, Jaeger tea. Not sure it's a schnapps mixture, mm. mixture to just warm him up. But instead he just got shithoused. Obviously, that's just hilarious. cold and drunk. <laughs> I don't I don't know how I didn't fucking know this, but did you know that Jean-Claude Van Damme was originally cast to play the Predator? I came across that information <laughs> and my mind was blown. Right, Because the idea is that, you know, JCVD is going to be this martial arts, crazy ninja mm-hmm. warrior predator. But he was dropped Number of reasons, first of which was because he was too short. He's only 5'9", whereas Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of his peeps were bodybuilders that are like between 6'2 and 6'5". So yeah, already it's not like intimidating. It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, like svelte, like, like slim little guy. But he, then, could, he could be taken down with one punch. Yeah, exactly. So, but also Van Damme was complaining about the monster suit being too hot and causing him to pass out. Uh-huh. Also... You told me this, where he was bitching about not being seen. Yeah, you weren't going to see Van Damme's face, and he's like, mm, yeah, the money, I don't know is if that's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not going to be able to see my oily skin when I do all the splits, just be scaly splits. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like, did you know that the guy who does splits was doing all those splits? <laughs> right. So he was removed and replaced by this guy, Kevin Peter Hall, who was seven foot two. And uh-huh. even though he's this giant, powerful guy, he still had to be connected to a bungee rig to get him to move more believably because this suit was like 200 pounds or something that they had. So then the Predator's head was built on a, as a separate piece and a total of three of those were created for the film. There was like a static just stunt head. Then there was a face that was totally open for when he was wearing his helmet. Mm-hmm. And then there was the hero head that was controlled by a set of nine servo motors that enabled motion of his brow area, mandibles, and a little cheek squint. Oh. So then Hall just was able to pu- uh, puppeteer the mouth with his own jaw and then add um, contact lenses to oh. finish the effect. And that's when he takes the mask off at the end of the movie and reveals yeah, and his, his and gross like, what jaw. What the hell are you? Are one ugly the motherfucker. motherfucker. <laughs> Speaking of that crazy sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice transition. So, I, know, I didn't even mean to do that, you guys. Producers approached Peter Cullen, who is a voice actor best known for Optimus Prime. Oh. And they asked him to give the Predator a voice, but Colin had no idea what something like that was supposed to look like. And at first, they didn't even show him what the Predator was supposed to look like. So how was he supposed to decide what it was supposed to sound like? They were like, we don't want to let you know. And eventually they let him know. And he thought it looked like a horseshoe crab. And he remembered right. that when he was a kid, you when you flipped over a horseshoe crab, they would make these little like gurgling sounds. And so that was the voice, which sounds like this. He's doing that with his mouth? Isn't that nuts? That is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so that was his sound. Final final note. The Predator's blood, a goopy substance with the color of Mountain Dew, was made on set using a mixture of the liquid from inside glow sticks and KY jelly. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Totally Glow makes sticks sense. and KY, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I've, that's what that would look like. <laughs> that's exactly what it would look like. <laughs> One thing that I noticed about the score is that 
it's done by Alan Silvestri, who was just coming off of doing Back to the Future. Uh-huh. And big chunks of it sounded exactly like parts of Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. But okay. because it was a different context of what I was seeing, the whole feel of the score was completely different. Oh, that's funny. But there were times where I was like closing my eyes and I was like totally hearing like, Marty, <laughs> Marty, yeah. no, we got to get to 88. So in this movie, the Predator is pretty good at some night vision. That's right. And I wanted to look into the origins of night vision. Mm -hmm. There's two types that are the basic like technologies behind it. One is called image enhancement, which works by collecting the tiny amounts of light that are there, including Mm -hmm. some light that's outside the visual spectrum, and then amplifying it to the point where we can see. That's it, like, night vision. That's that's one version one of version. night vision because mm-hmm. it's like it. And what I like about that is like how simple it basically is. You mm-hmm. just take the light that's already there, and it's as though we could open our eyes irises as wide as possible. Cool. Okay. But it's able to amplify it because we can't really amplify light easily, but we can amplify electricity easily. Mm-hmm. And so it transforms the light into electricity, amplifies it, and then puts it back into light. And that's why we can see like vividly what is off of very little amounts of light. But does that still incorporate why it's... Because I feel like night vision goggles, they're always like a green hue. Yeah, it's a green hue. mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like... I I don't know exactly why it's a green hue Mm -hmm. specifically, but I think it's basically like they can't take in the various colors from this light. They just amplify the light signal itself. Gotcha. The other type is called thermal imaging, Mm -hmm. and that captures the upper, upper portion of infrared light, which is emitted by as heat mm-hmm. by various things like bodies rather than trees. Yeah, so so yeah, well cuz I read that it's like electromagnetic radiation with longer wavelengths than visible light. Right. It, but, like, it, but like on the on the red side of the spectrum. Exactly. Not the ultraviolet. So side. let's talk about the in, the discovery of infrared. Mm-hmm. Which is, as you say, it's like just beyond the red light of the spectrum because mm-hmm. it goes red all the way to blue and yeah. then, you know, ultraviolet. Like ultraviolet, yeah. And so it was discovered by William Herschel, who was a famous astronomer from the 1700s. And he realized that when sunlight goes through different colored filters, different amounts of heat are produced. Wow. Okay. And he came to the conclusion that colors could have different temperatures. And so he set up a glass prism, which, you know, blows up any basic light into every color. Mm -hmm. And he put thermometers at different spots on the different colors of where the light was hitting. Wow. And then he thought to put a thermometer just outside of the red light. And he found that, like, closer to red is hotter, but beyond red is even hotter than red. Okay. So that was the realization of like, wait a minute, light may go beyond the visual spectrum. Right, right. He then proved through use of thermometers that this invisible light refracted and reflected the exact same way as regular sunlight did. So he was like proving that what we can't literally see is working. It's a part of the light spectrum. Right, totally. I read that if you could see the wavelengths that we can't see, mm-hmm. the, the wavelength would literally be between 0.00004 inches to 0.01 inches. Okay. And that our bodies at normal body temperature radiate chiefly at wavelengths around 0.0004 inches, which is right in this like sweet spot of infrared. Oh. Yeah. So that's going to come that into play really later when I talk about how to like avoid thermal detection. Yeah. But I thought that was cool. That's like the craziest thing to me. It was it was in 1800 and 
yeah, just like realizing like there's this invisible force and it's definitely measurable. Right. We just can't see it with our stupid human eyes. Our stupid fucking human <laughs> eyes. I also, I knew Herschel's name because it's on a big deal NASA telescope, which specifically focuses on infrared light coming from stars. Wow. So I had this epiphany where I was like, oh, that's why the infrared telescope is named after Herschel. Because he invented, uh, he discovered infrared. infrared. <laughs> He didn't it's invent it. Cool. He right. discovered he it. He discovered it. <laughs> He's not God or anything, yeah. guys. Well, he also, his other claim to fame is he discovered Uranus. Is it Uranus or is it Uranus now? We're grown up. No one cares. <laughs> I mean, scientists call it Uranus. So I can see Uranus also too, Also Uranus. <laughs> Look, let's, let's all grow up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Science. So it turns out... That predator who uses infrared vision to find his prey is the same as how snakes detect their prey. So oh. I wanted to look into that a little bit. So apparently two groups of snakes, including pit vipers and boids, which is a category that includes boa constrictors and pythons, they have these pencil eraser sized holes on each side of their faces called pit organs. Hmm. And inside of the cavities are membranes. These are part of the snake's somatosensory system, which is what detects touch, temperature, and pain. And it does not receive signals from the eyes, which means hmm. that snakes see infrared by detecting heat, not photons of light. Okay. Let's break down this idea in terms of like a camera. So a simple pinhole camera is a camera without a lens. It's essentially a lightproof box, but with a tiny aperture or pinhole on one side. And light from a scene passes through the aperture and projects an inverted image on the opposite side of the box. This is known as the camera obscura mm -hmm. effect. Have you talked about this on the show? I don't think I've talked about it on the show. I've heard of it. Okay. <laughs> but that's just like simply how, how cameras work. So what it sounds like to me is that the idea initially was that the pit hole instead of a pinhole but the snake's pit hole mm. opening on their face acts like a lens forcing light from the source to form this tiny point on the membrane which is essentially the camera's film so okay. they, they were kind of equating it to how a camera sees and, and sees these images those are their rods and cones <laughs> right okay <laughs> however where a, a pinhole camera produces these crisp images by focusing the light to a tiny point an aperture that tiny would never let in enough infrared waves to stimulate the brain's pit orb and membrane since infrared wavelengths have a much lower frequency than visible light. So in other words, the pit openings of the snake are too large to produce crisp images, which is why they're blurry. Okay. And that's what we see when we see like infrared cameras or even how the predator was. It's like blurry. You can see the outline, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not crisp. A recent study by researchers published in Nature revealed how it works. So it turns out that nerve cells in the pit organ contain an ion channel called TRPA1. This is an infrared receptor that detects infrared radiation as heat rather than light. And TRPA1 channels also are found inside the heads of mammals. It's also known as wasabi receptors because it detects pungent irritants from like mustard plants or other sources. Oh, shit. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy. So... Infrared radiation from, let's say, a prey or whatever, heats up the snake's pit membrane tissue, and when a threshold temperature is reached, TRPA1 channels open, allowing ions to flow into the nerve cells and trigger an electrical signal. So according to the observations, rattlesnake TRPA1 is activated by temperatures higher than about 28 degrees Celsius, which is roughly the temperature a snake would feel from a mouse or a squirrel about a meter away. Okay. So what's, yeah, it's kind of... So it's it, like perfectly designed for the prey that yeah. they're going after? It's almost like they evolved. <laughs> To be able to up. But what's cool about it is like, you know, all of these these small changes that people have discovered in their their research 
it's also as a result of the fact that, you know, maybe people have been so slow to discover these things because of their natural fear of snakes and because like pit vipers right. are super dangerous. So these, right. these, you know, these discoveries have been kind of moving pretty slow. But. That's a funny concept of yeah. just like, you know, what's easiest to study, <laughs> we best understand. Let's study garter snakes, <laughs> yeah, man. Exactly. And that's pretty, pretty like, bad. Yeah. We don't understand the killer sharks as well <laughs> as whatever you want right. to pick. So they don't. So in short, snakes don't just have like camera lens openings or whatever they have they're insane they in like, the membrane they're, they're they got the membrane and it's yeah. insane yeah. a little while ago i was talking about an invisibility cloak yeah and this quantum stealth technology which basically works like it takes light from behind you bends it around you so that someone looking at you only sees what's behind you okay okay and and seeing images of this in action are really creepy because it looks like the predator but what i kind of found doing a bit of re-research on this subject mm. was that there's questions over whether or not these things are real right now okay because all of the images that i saw that i had thought were legitimate images of this turned out to be things to show the media the concept and that for the security reasons they don't actually show the real thing i see which does make sense but and there are definitely real companies that are going after this technology but it was definitely a thing where i was like wait a minute is this maybe a hoax yeah or also that like people were inspired by movies like the predator right. that it's like right. this could be possible because right. like i was reading that uh, allegedly in the early 90s the department of defense tested this form of camouflage that used these like millions of fiber optic cables hidden to mirror the opposite side of what whatever you know you wanted them to see so yeah. i don't know if that's the thing that i think is a different technology that seems way more realistic to me yeah. because like i know that you there are weird devices that can like bend microwaves and certain mm -hmm. other things and so it's not crazy to me that it could actually refract light around you and make it appear like you're not there right but what you're talking about makes perfect sense which is basically like you have a display on the front of you mm -hmm. and a camera on the back of you and it's displaying what's behind you on the front of you right yeah and so like uh, based on the test footage it looks like you know with the person wearing it they just kind of look like a heat wave uh -huh. you know so it's yeah. not that they just completely blend in but it basically looks like the predator did Right, that's the like, thing, like the predator, when you're really looking the at them. jungle came alive. Yeah, exactly. When yeah. you're really looking at him, you notice him, but like they spend a lot of time, like you have to know that he's there mm -hmm. to even be looking for the way that it deforms. Oh yeah, totally. You know, the the w the wilds around it. <laughs> yeah, the wilds. <laughs> Man. <laughs> we got very documentary filmmaker with the, the, the wilds of Africa. Fucking wake up. I don't know what's going on. All right. It's okay. Well, because I, I was also reading about this team of Japanese scientists that have taken inspiration from similar fictional suits, but specifically the Ghost in the Shell Scar oh, yeah, Scarjo yeah. suit. She can like blend in with her surroundings. I've never seen it. I think it, I haven't seen it either, but I think it's the kind of or thing like shape shifting, like, like she can touch something. I don't know if she shape shifts. I know, I'm pretty sure that she can make herself invisible by like having displays. Okay. Okay. Body. Well, something about the suit makes it so that she blends in with mm. her environment, whatever. Mm. So this professor at the University of Tokyo, he pioneered the use of something called retro reflective projection technology, which led him to design the special fabric that's covered in glass beads only 50 microns wide. And the fabric is a screen onto which digital images of the background environment can be projected. Mm -hmm. So as the background images are reflected back at the source and the viewer, the object beneath the cloak disappears. Right. So stuff like that. And then like other similar experiments done by people at the, the University of San Diego, they produced like fluid mirrors for drone camouflage, similar kind of stuff with using nano antennae to camouflage large objects like bomber planes, this kind of thing. But it's wow. like, I don't know. 
I mean, I understand why you want to camouflage those things, but come on, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I want like, to see if there's a bomber plane. Up well, that's the like, enemy doesn't. Yeah, the enemy doesn't. And it's just like, yeah, that's one of those technologies that's like, we shouldn't allow this. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we shouldn't allow this in war. We shouldn't allow this in life. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're like, in the shower. You look over. You see like a slight movement, and it's like I know that this invisibility cloak thing exists. I'm freaking out right well, now. Well, totally. I mean, and you know, being interested in all this shit with the movie, it's like I got, <laughs> I got turned on to a lot of these survivalist blogs. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because one of the things I wanted to look into was whether or not you could rub mud on yourself and you know avoid thermal imaging, which right. is what Arnold does at the end. The right? coolness just, of the mud it just lowers your body. That's his invisibility. Cloak. And it sounds like his Schwartz body temper definitely was lower because he was shivering to death but that's because <laughs> yeah. they did it at night and then he probably got hypothermia at some point well it was night in the movie yeah you know <laughs> the character method, would have been cold too yeah but apparently back in 2003 Mythbusters proved that covering yourself entirely in mud doesn't in fact conceal your body heat because after only a short amount of time the mud on your skin becomes warmer Schwarzenegger's uh-huh. wearing clay like pottery clay so I guess <laughs> right. it's a little bit different but again so remember humans at normal body temperature radiate light in this infrared sweet spot but I found this modern survival blog about how to actually block infrared thermal imaging do you want to hear how is it a thermal blanket no well that's <laughs> one of them jeff you fucker i'm just taking a stab in the dark <laughs> totally so there's no absolute certain way but there's just some techniques that you can use to avoid detection so one of the most effective methods is ironically to hide behind glass because glass oh. is opaque to thermal imaging but it just seems a little bit counterintuitive because if you're trying to not be seen then hiding behind glass i guess unless it's like hyper tinted and right shit, yeah it would be a little bit you're like can't detect me motherfucker yeah anyway, to your point yes an ordinary thermal blanket or a space blanket can be used because they're made of mylar foil and they can block ir imagery mm-hmm. the problem there though is that whatever is inside the blanket or whatever you're trying to conceal its heat will either build up inside to an unbearable degree mm. or heat will escape somehow and then it'll be you know it'll be detectable yeah so concealment for the most part will be just temporary without elaborate mechanisms to disperse your heat signature and then the other thing to consider is if you are hiding your heat signature, under some conditions, your signature may look too cold to an IR scan. It kind of oh, has that black hole yeah, view. Yeah. So the idea is that you want to try to blend in, maybe next to other warm objects. Like you could stand next to stones or thick walls that may still be holding heat from the day. Mm-hmm. Vents in buildings may be outflowing warm air, which could help obscure your thermal outline. These are great tips for when you're being hunted by the predator. Yeah. I'm glad everybody's going to know this. I know. Well, and also in the, in the forest, they had a it was a little bit easier because like if there's a heavy canopy of trees at least from over like over top Mm -hmm. it makes it harder because the canopy is covering it and that's the same with like thick brush on the ground Mm. but you know you could use netting again that's just kind of a temporary thing or you could use like a ghillie suit I suppose is what something like that is for in addition to just blending in with the the background yeah something that like covers you with like not just mud but Sticks. Yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Like the visual yeah, blending yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because, you know, the predator, he's colorblind, right? Like it sounds mm. to me like he only can see in that kind of infrared yeah. view. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to camouflage in that regard. But also, thermal imaging doesn't perform very well in falling rain. So go to Seattle. Oh, okay. Um, just <laughs> avoid open spaces and skylines by day or night. So basically, common sense just reduce, disperse, or cover the sources of heat. You got to blend in. It's good advice. Yeah. I mean, now I know <laughs> I'm going to survive. War. Let's go take him out. <laughs> 
So I was looking into some ways that predators play with their prey. Oh, yeah. I just wound up finding like a bunch of weird animal eating habits. Oh, cool. So starting off with the Egyptian vultures, Mm -hmm. which are the smallest vulture species, they actually use tools. They use rocks like hammers to crack open eggs and stuff like that. The birds can? With their fucking talons? Yeah. Like, well, because that's the thing. They... They'll eat anything that's dead. So they were actually loved by the ancient Egyptians for removing garbage and other dead things. Okay. And they were even known as Pharaoh's chickens. Oh, nice. Yeah. They use rocks like little hammers and crack open eggs. And part of that is because they're the smallest vulture species. So they have to like wait around for the bigger vultures to be done. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So they're vulture vultures in a way. (laughs) Uh, Another bird, the Northern Strike which is a type of bird found in the northern U.S. and southern Canada. They prey on small rodents and insects, but because they don't have talons like a hawk, they use their sharp beaks to kill the prey, Mm. and then they leave the leftovers impaled on a thorn or a piece of barbed wire like it's a shish kebab. Jesus Christ. Do they come back to it? Yeah. And they keep eating it. Yeah, so it's like like leftovers. Yeah, they get to keep doing it, and that not only extends their meal, but it also attracts mates and marks their territory. be like, look what I did. Yeah, look at all my food hanging up on I love that we're doing this because like you've talked before about wanting to learn about different um, animals that that hunt for sport Mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And certainly that's what they what the predator does. Right. He hunts for sport. He's here on Earth. Skinning people alive for sport. And I had wanted to look into other animals that do that specifically for sport or like take trophies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, because it's like it seems like such a weird psychological thing to do. Right. Well, I could totally imagine that I would. If I first came across this, I'd be like, wow, this thing is holding trophies. But then you realize, like, it's also part food for right, them and all right. these different things. And that is a way to kind of, like, peacock to other people to be like, I could provide this food sauce yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. Look at my giant feast. Right, totally. I read about another bird called the squab birds, mm-hmm. which are unofficially known as the pirate bird. They Mostly they eat by stealing food from other birds. Ah, uh, yes. And sometimes they basically bully and pester bird a bird <laughs> so bad that the bird will throw up their meal and then the squaw bird will eat that. What? So, Just like tra- traumatizes them so much that they're like emotional vomit yeah. happening. <laughs> and then that's how they eat. Like that's like one of their main methods of, of getting food is like God. they pester a bird so bad that the bird ends up puking it up and then they, they're like, oh, that's free just meal. just proof people have evolved to be total dickheads. <laughs> Definitely. People, animals, birds, whatever. It's, it's in us as earthlings. <laughs> There's a lot of other crazy shit out there though, like a fish that spits water at insects above the surface to trap them and take them down. To like... Not cannonball, but just like bomb them out of the air, water bomb them. Yeah, water bombing them. And mantis shrimps that can use their arms to punch and smash their victims. Like they can move their limbs at 50 miles per hour to smash open clams. Wow. Like just punching them open. When I was in Costa Rica, we got attacked by monkeys who definitely knew how to (laughs) to open doors, (laughs) smash shit on the ground. Oh yeah, you showed me that video. That's so great. It was so, like we literally had to run inside and and close the door because, and these motherfuckers, they were like sitting ducks being like, hey monkeys, come over here. And they're like, we're going to come over there and steal all of your things, your electronics. (laughs) (laughs) They love cameras. Yeah, they do. I wanted to look into natural animal camouflage. I mean, we see it all the time. Like most animal species in the world have developed some sort of natural camouflage that helps them find food and avoid attack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the ultimate goal of camouflage is to hide from other animals. So 
the physiology and the behavior of an animal's predators are significant to this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, there's no point in an animal re- replicating the color of its surroundings if its main predator is colorblind. Right. This is a reason why... Like if it's why... a snake, you, you can't... Then yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's or, not going to do anything. Or even like lions are colorblind, so it doesn't matter that zebras are crazy stripy uh-huh. and don't blend in because they... If anything, those lines make the animal confused because when a lion's looking at a herd of zebra, it just looks like a bunch of lines going all over right, the place. You right. can't really like hone in on that one. That makes so much sense. Yeah, so, that, so that. that's one... one idea of camouflage so you see this also with like deer and squirrels and hedgehogs any animals that are kind of brownish or earth tone colors that blend in with their environments sharks and dolphins and other sea creatures they generally have a grayish blue coloring which helps them blend in with the light of the water that kind of thing so a related tactic is for an animal to take on the appearance of some other object. I always think of the walking stick, which is this oh, yeah. insect that looks like a twig. Mm-hmm. So a predator might easily be able to distinguish the walking stick from everything else, but he just thinks it's a stick. He doesn't think it's a bug, so right. he moves on. There's moth species that have developed designs on their wings that resemble the eyes of a larger animal. The, on the back of the hawk moth caterpillar, it actually looks like a snake head. Oh. So that deters them. You have, in a lot of ecosystems, smaller poisonous animals that develop these bright colors colors think of like brightly colored frogs that are poisonous and then other frogs that are not poisonous end up you know they might develop the same coloration so that uh-huh. they can cash in on the old poison color alert. it is amazing how much you just look at like how would i get out of this situation yeah and then the evolution is there like, to, for it to how exist. do you get people to just stop fucking with you just change right. your outfit yeah <laughs> get some stripes confuse them yeah you know they say vertical stripes <laughs> When you're wearing they, them, they, are, they're thinning. They, are they? Is it vertical Black stripes is thin, that are thin? Vertical, I don't know. Right, the wide stripes make you right. look wider. Right. That's you know? why the zebras—they yeah. know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they're very thin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jeff is actively second guessing what he's saying. He's yeah. like, I don't. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but. So sticking with this idea of how animals produce different colors, there's there's two primary ways they do this. One of which is chemi- chemically. It's through uh, biochromes, which are these microscopic natural pigments in an animal's body. The, the biochromes' chemical makeup is such that they absorb some colors of light and they reflect others. So these biochromes might be in the cells at the skin's surface or in cells at deeper levels. The deeper level cells are called chromatophores. So in most animals, biochromes are in the fur and reptiles, amphibians, and fish, they're in the scales. In birds, they're in feathers and in insects, they're part of the exoskeleton. For example, there's a lot of insects that have a shell that replicate the smooth texture of leaves. So a lot of birds and mammals produce different colors of fur or feathers depending on the time of year. So in most cases, either changing amounts of daylight or shifts in temperature triggers this hormonal reaction in the animal that causes it to produce different biochromes. Mm. This makes a little bit more sense if you're thinking that there's a chemical reaction that is triggered by change in the environment to get animals to change their color. Just kind of illuminates that a little bit. It's not just them going gray because they're old. Right. (laughs) Right. there's There's a reason for it. Yeah. But think about like feathers and fur in the same way that hair and fingernails on us, they're dead. Mm-hmm. It's dead tissue. So mm-hmm. in order for them to change color, that's why it's like more of a seasonal change because okay. they have to regrow like a whole entire... new color. Whereas in reptiles, coloration is determined by biochromes in living cells, which is how they're able to change so fucking fast. Makes sense, right? 
Now, some animals like certain cuttlefish species, they have a collection of chromatophores. That's that deep level mm. biochrome thing. Right. And each of them contains a single pigment. So an ingle chromatophore <laughs> is surrounded <laughs> by a muscle. And when the cuttlefish constricts the muscle, all the pigment is squeezed to the top of the chromatophore into a wide disc. When he relaxes, the cell returns to a natural shape, which is like a relatively small blob. So okay. just based on how he fucking contracts and relaxes his muscles, he's able to change his color over his entire body. So it's like the the cells that have the different colors in them will expand based mm-hmm. on how he's moved it. Yeah, and then you, that'll like take over the exactly. full coloration of his skin. That's so you, so you cool. contract one area and so that color takes over and then you relax in another area and that pigment goes away. So that's, that's how they're able to... Isn't I that I want to do crazy? that. Yeah. Flex your arm and you, it can like glow in the dark or something? 100%. Now, they used to think that this same or similar mechanism was true for the most famous color changer of all, the chameleon. The chameleon. Yes. However, recent studies have shown that chameleons also have a special layer of cells called iridophores. Irid- yeah, <laughs> called iridophores under their skin. And the iridophores are made up of hundreds of thousands of guanine crystals. So when chameleons relax or excite their skin, these cells move to actually physically change structure, hmm. which goes beyond just changing pigment or like squeezing and making pigments go. So researchers oh, found cool. that when this happens, these cells act like prisms, which reflect different w- wavelengths of light to create the variety of tones that we see. Oh, well, look at them. Yeah, look at them. <laughs> look at what they're doing. Now, come, 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 <laughs> it, yeah. Well, but one thing that I thought was kind of interesting about like the way that they change colors is that different colors produce different temperatures. So you would see them in infrared in different oh. heat signatures based on the color that they might choose. Well, because well, that's crazy because also chameleons, whereas most animals tend to change based on what their changing environment mm-hmm. is. Chameleons change their skin color based on what their fucking mood is. Right. So they send social signals to other chameleons. For example, darker colors tend to mean a chameleon is angry. Right. Lighter colors might be used to attract mates. Some chameleons also change colors to help their bodies adjust to changes in temperature or light. Like if a chameleon gets a little chilly, they might change to a darker color to absorb more heat and warm its body. They're the fucking fashionistas of the animal world, dude. They're the mood rings of the animal world. I want to be a chameleon. People, people always say the chameleons are bad because it connotes this like oh she just changes changes just to yeah no i'm just fucking being reasonable dude i live in la the color the the temperature changes the light (laughs) right it's chilly at night well that's the funny thing is the misconception that they do it to blend in with their environment Mm -hmm. which is like you know that's like when you talk about a social chameleon it's somebody who's changing to fit in with their environment but real chameleons are doing it to signal other chameleons and not to actually camouflage themselves and they're actually being forthright they're being like this is how i'm feeling today Tread lightly. Yeah. I had a bad day. Traffic sucked. Right. Like this is where a we're a little at. aggressive. I'm Things not... are a little dark around <laughs> yeah. here. God, you know, for a long time I felt like my favorite animal, aside from obviously a cat, uh-huh. was a sloth because I just thought they were too cool for school. They, they just are. did not have time to speed up for anybody. Chameleons, I think they are vastly improving my. Yeah, my well, the, yeah, it's really that like they're misunderstood. Yeah, they weren't just. They weren't posers. But they the, were doing their own thing. They fucking express themselves with what they put on their body. And isn't what's more human than that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I really thought that there was at least some element of it that would be for, for camouflage. For blending in but from predators. Apparently but it's not. Not at all. Yeah. Final crazy thing that I read, because you were talking about weird dietary habits. Mm. So some animal species actually change which pigments are in their skin based on what they eat. So there's oh. something called a nudibranch. 
It's a small sea creature. They change their coloration by altering their diet. So when they feed from a particular sort of coral, its body deposits the pigments from that coral into the skin and outer extensions of the intestines. Okay. The pigments show through and the animal becomes the same color as the coral. So when the creatures move on to a differently colored piece of coral, its body color changes with the new food source. Okay. That, that makes sense. You are what you eat. That You are what you eat. So there are choppas in this movie. Get to those? <laughs> you get to those, famously. Run! Go! Get to the choppas! <laughs> and I wanted to talk a little bit about helicopters. So often nicknamed choppers, copters, helos, helis, or whirlybirds. Helis? Helis. I don't think I've heard that. Oh, I've definitely. There's movies where they say every I've permutation of these right, things. Right, right. But going up in the whirly bird, yeah, you know. heard that, heard that. Somewhat famously, helicopters were kind of invented in the 15th century by Leonardo da Vinci, which is that he didn't actually build one, but he drew a machine that had a top like a screw, not like a rotor, but it looked like a screw uh-huh. with like a continuous foil okay. going around it. And he called it the aerial screw. Mm-hmm. And it, sh- <laughs> it should. That was later changed to the Mile High Club. Um, oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, 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 oh. my God. You deserve a million points for that. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, you need to get out of my I, house right No, now. you deserve all like all the credit. I can't believe I didn't even, okay. it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> okay. So yeah, this screw would rotate really fast to create lift. There were actually like a lot of toys that could do helicopter mechanics in between Leonardo's drawing mm-hmm. and the actual invention of the helicopter, which wasn't until 1940. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it was really late. And like you think about how quickly those things just took over war. 100%. Yeah. 1940 was when the first powered flight, like free flowing flight yeah. could happen with a helicopter. And with a, like in concept, it's a fairly simple machine like you need at least two rotors one is like on top to maintain the lift and then the other one is basically to like push you around okay once you're like once you're hovering you need another thing to kind of like scoot joystick it around Mm -hmm. yeah and the reason the tail rotor is on its side is that the main rotor of the helicopter wants to spin the entire thing, and so it's actually counteracting that force. Right. That makes sense. You've seen kind of out-of-control helicopters, mm-hmm. the old Black Hawk down. Exactly. They, they start spiraling out of control. And it's usually because like their tail rotor will have been hit, yeah. and so that means that they lose all balance. And it's crazy to think of a helicopter as just these insane forces that are all in a perfect balance right. to allow you to fly it and just like hover in a specific spot. And if any one thing disturbs that balance, the helicopter just drops out of the sky. Totally. Because it's just a big hunk of metal floating up there. Right. They don't have, like, what are the fail safes? For there something? aren't really. Not really. Like, that's, that's why helicopters often go down. Mm-hmm. And then it's even, you think about how hard it is to fly rather than like an airplane because there's so many different things to control at the same time that you're keeping in balance. So there's controllers for both hands and both feet. So the helicopter clutching it. Yeah, like the helicopter becomes like an extension of the human body, where you have to like learn what each muscle movement will do. Fuck. And literally, like there isn't a part of you that's not controlling another part of the thing. And it's all about kind of that body awareness of those like friction points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because a commercial plane, there's there's a ton of fail safes. Not the least of which is that you have wings Mm -hmm. that you can Mm -hmm. glide down on. This is like you're in control of every single rotor on the machine. Right. Have you ever been in a helicopter? I've been in one. I don't think I have. It's a crazy experience. 
I think both of our favorite line is probably get to the chopper. Get to the chopper. <laughs> is it not? Get to the chopper. It's get to the chopper. You're not gonna beat that. Yeah. One thing I really Although, loved. What the hell are you? And the ugly <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, you are one ugly motherfucker. Right. I did read that both the director, John McTiernan, and Schwarzenegger lost 25 pounds during the film. Really? Schwarzenegger's weight loss was a professional choice. McTiernan's weight loss was because he avoided all the food in Mexico. Yeah. He was also the only one to not get dysentery. Oh, my God. Well, because I heard a lot of people were fucked up because of the water. Um, a lot of diarrhea. I heard that, God, I heard that Schwarzenegger slimmed down because, you know, somebody that would be in you know, special forces would mm. be more slim than like Mr. Olympic or whatever the fuck he was, Mr. Right, Universe. Right. I both. read, <laughs> I know, right? This fucking clown. <laughs> He's the best clown of all. Part of the shoot was 48 hours before Arnold Schwarzenegger's wedding rehearsal dinner. Oh, man. Apparently, Jesse Ventura kept teasing him about his nuptials, which was was just ruining takes. And so Schwarzenegger <laughs> ended up missing the final preparation of the film. And Maria Shriver was all pissed off because, you know, he's at the rehearsal dinner being like, oh, my scene, I missed my scene. And, you know. <laughs> he's like being a total right. bitch about it. Yeah, because, you know, how stressful would it be if you're at the end of a shoot day and you're having to be like, get to the altar! <laughs> get to the oh. altar. Fuck off. The- <laughs> I did also read that, like, the competition between these actors oh, to be, yeah. like, the, the muscliest. I read that Carl Weathers secretly woke up, as, like, at 3 a.m. to work out before everybody knew that he was up. And then he would walk in and be like, I'm just naturally this strong. Yeah. Like, he tried to hide that he was working my, out just, all the my time. My muscles are always this taut and Like, what, is, what are you gaining from doing that? Well, similarly, Jesse Ventura suggested to Arnold that they measure arms with the winner getting a bottle of champagne. And Ventura was delighted to find out from the wardrobe department that his arms were one inch bigger than Arnold's, but in reality, he actually lost because Schwarzenegger told the wardrobe department to, to tell Ventura that his arms were bigger. It's like, I, let's give him this old Jesse. Yeah, pat him on the head. Yeah, like, I, I love, like, Schwarzenegger's so confident in his yeah. arms that he's like, just lie to the guy. We don't guy. have to make this a thing. <laughs> oh, what a national treasure. I know that he was controversial as the governor, but come on. And, as and with plenty, other plenty of other personal things. <laughs> in his life <laughs> right the old yeah the old the adultery. old yeah the <laughs> child however jesse ventura got a little uh consolation prize because there's a real life goblin spider species called predatorinops okay predatorinops blaine this is a gene it's named uh, after blaine cooper which is jesse ventura's character's okay. name now two every- <laughs> governators in this <laughs> yeah, movie two governators i mean that's crazy <laughs> there's a picture of the two of them and you're like god did any of us know that this was in the who would have guessed yeah Aye, aye, aye. One thing I want to say, too, is that the movie's getting a proper remake next year, and it's being written and directed by Shane Black. He's, like, all about the buddy comedies and stuff. Cool. Like, he wrote Lethal Weapon oh, all the way nice. back and, like, recently did Iron Man 3, which I really enjoyed. And, like, he's a great writer and director, and he's back to do it. And I also saw he had, like, a very small role as an actor in the original Predator. Really? Just yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but oh, man. we can what only you- hope that JCVD gets his shot. <laughs> no. no, that ship has sailed. It's fought the alien, and now it's going to go back to its roots and and fight a new Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I really don't know what's going to be in this remake. Fingers crossed, fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. In the meantime, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and we will see you guys next week for Cube. Cube! Silly movie, lots of good stuff, though. Enjoy that. (laughs) Bye. See you guys. Have a good weekend.